You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. move into the book of Hebrews today. We are in chapter 7, starting in verse 11. Welcome to turn there in your Bibles or if you have technology, but we'll also have it on the screen. I remember, um, I remember lots of things, but I remember specifically being a freshman in college and a few of my friends decided to get together and, and we were going to buy a gift for one of our mentors uh, because he was always late. He didn't call us back. He kind of was sort of unreliable. And so we thought that we were going we to buy him something to help him get organized. Now, I sit here today at 41 years old, and I, I, I understand the irony of that whole situation. As I look back at my life as a freshman in college, and I know this, that my life was on fire as a freshman in college. Like, my life was a mess. I was my own emotional terrorist. I just did not have anything figured out. And so to have the audacity to look at somebody else and say, hey, I'm going to get you something that's going to organize you is absolutely comical. It's comical that I would do that, yet that's what we did. And we pulled our money together, and we bought my friend, my mentor, we bought him a Palm Pilot. I don't know if you remember these relics, a Palm Pilot. Uh, this was the first rendition. Now, look, this wasn't a phone, people, new people. That there was no phone on this. Uh, you couldn't take pictures. There were no apps. Uh, there was nothing special. You couldn't navigate anywhere. The, the device literally ran on two AAA batteries. Like, my kids' toys run on more today. The storage on a Palm Pilot was 512 kilobytes. Now, to put that in modern terms, your smartphone, when it takes a picture, it saves a file that's somewhere around two megabytes, which means that it would have taken four Palm Pilots to store one picture that you take today, right? Like, my kids are never going to talk about Palm Pilots. They're an antiquated thing. Now, if I'm reliving the quote-unquote glory days, we might go into there, but... But it's an antiquated thing, but yet it serves a function that continues to this day. It served the function of getting organized, which is still something I and you desperately seek today. It's, it's an ongoing function. We need to be organized. And so as we walk into chapter 7 today, in the book of Hebrews, we're going to come across another antiquated thing called a covenant, an old covenant that we learn about in Hebrews chapter 7 that needs to be replaced because it is no longer useful. It is weak and useless in light of the new covenant. Yet that old covenant reveals to us a very basic need and story of all of humanity, which means this, is that we need to become familiar with this old covenant we need to know its terms and understand its definitions if we're ever to understand the superiority of the new co covenant that we have through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But before we talk about what 
a covenant is and define all of its terms, I, I think that it's most important for us to come to grips with the understanding of why we need covenant to begin with. If I handed you a tool and said, here's what it is, and I didn't tell you why you needed it, you would lack understanding. And today we're going to take some time to understand why covenant is important, because we're going to be talking a lot about it in the next few chapters. And so here's the deal. Uh, I sort of freaked out on the slides this week. I'm just going to be honest with you. There's a lot of information that's going to be coming at you uh, because I think that this is a foundational and necessary thing for us to know. We need to understand why we need a covenant. And so if I'm going to at, tell you the simple answer of why we need a covenant is this, is whether or not we believe this, whether or not we accept this or not, humanity, you and I, we are without salvation. Humanity is without salvation. What does that mean? It means that every human being who has existed in the world has had an inward yearning that there must be something more to this life. Uh, there must be something else I'm supposed to be doing. It is if we live our lives with a constant fog in our midst. We're going somewhere but we're always like, is this the right thing? Am I doing it with the right people? Am I, am I going the right way here? And we are hopeful. We desire for somebody to deliver us, to come and remove the fog so we know for sure. That is salvation. It's deliverance. And so a simple definition of salvation is this, is that salvation is to be rescued from something to something. Salvation is to be rescued from something to something. Our spirits are restless. We lack contentment. We desperately want peace and rest. We want understanding. We want worth and value. We want to know love and happiness. We want all of those things. But we don't know where to find it. And we search out all sorts of things believing that they're the answer. Right? We, we think that we can find salvation in another person, in a relationship, through fame, through status, through diversity, through education, through inclusion. It could be that we desire salvation simply in that we want everyone else to leave us alone so we can do what we want to do. My life would be better, we think, if everybody else would just shut up and let me do what I want to do. That's what we think. If we can get this, if I can get that, then, then I'll have it. I'll have the key that unlocks everything. So we come up with a whole bunch of lists in order to what? To save ourselves, to find salvation. So here's a truth that you must understand. Every one of us, we all believe in a salvation story. We all believe in a salvation story, but we don't necessarily know what we're being rescued from and where we need to be rescued to. Those have differed. And so over the course of the last week, we've talked about one of the good gifts that God gives to us in something unseen called typology. Today we're going to talk about a bit of typology, and then we're going to talk about narrative. Typology is this idea of a prophetic symbol. 
It's when God uses something real and active to point us forward to another time and another person. And so last week, you heard about Melchizedek, and you heard me say his name 3,000 times without pronouncing it correctly once, right? And we said, we said that Melchizedek was a type. He's a typology, a real person that God uses to help us understand another who will come in the future who will be like him. God wants us to know him. And so he reveals to us wisdom slowly over time for our understanding. And so Melchizedek, as we said last week, was a priestly king. He was without genealogy. He didn't have a beginning or an end. And that foreshadows the coming son of God who will become an everlasting priest and king. And so that's typology. Today, we're going to talk about another good gift that God gives to us and how God uses narratives in our life to reveal his truth. And so what is a narrative? A narrative is an overarching story. I've said this, that we all believe in a salvation story. We all want deliverance. We don't necessarily know from what or what to, but every one of us shares that story. And that story is made up of some essential parts. There are parts to that story that every single one of us share. And so I want to walk through those a bit. This is our story. Within us, there is this idea, this longing. There's a veiled Glory, I can put it that way, a veiled glory that there's something more to this life and I can't quite figure it out, but I know that I was made to do something else. There's something out there that I can't figure out that's going to provide for me worth and acceptance and love. But we can't find it. And the reason that we can't find it, because there is something broken. There's a brokenness to this. We, we can't figure it out. We, we understand that we need something, but we're, we're missing it. We don't have the answer. We can't fix ourselves. We don't have the key. There's something off within us, and we can't quite put our finger on it. And so what that does is it forces us on a lifelong journey towards authenticity. We want to find what's authentic. We want to find what's true. We want to find the key that unlocks all of our potential and all of our happiness. But to do that, we first must recognize that which oppresses us. We have to figure out what it is that is keeping me from being the best version of myself, from having salvation in this life. And so we find whatever it is that we believe that is oppressing us, and we turn from it, and we deny it. And that can be other people, it can be systems. It can be ideas. It can even be ourselves thinking. And it can even be us thinking, well, if these people would just let me alone, if they would just let me listen to myself, then I'll be good. They're the oppressors. And why are we searching for authenticity? Because we desire, at our most fundamental level, acceptance. We want to be accepted. We want to find this authentic truth because we think this authentic truth is where we're going to find our worth. And we work towards acceptance. And we say, oh, this is what I've been missing. They are what I've been missing. 
That is what I've been missing. I get it now. And we harbor in that truth. We rest in that truth. We clothe ourselves in that truth. And we reject all of the things that are getting in our way that aren't associated with that truth. So that we feel and find acceptance. Because we believe that when we find acceptance, that we will have our revealed glory known. That we will be redeemed. That we will find our redemption and will say, this is who I am. This is how I was made. This is always what I was supposed to be. This is what I've been looking for all of my life. I'm free, we say. We think. We trust. We have found the answer for our lacking, we believe. And these are the parts of the greater narrative of our lives and the greater narrative of all of mankind. This is our story. This is our story. It doesn't mean that we always finish that story, but it means that we are constantly repeating the story over and over again. Veil glory, brokenness, authenticity, acceptance, reveal glory. This is it. No, it's not. Oh, something's off in me. I can't find it. That's it. Accept, no, reveal glory. No, it's not. And so we just keep repeating it over and over again. Have you ever wondered why Marvel movies feel like the same movie every time? It's because they are. They're the exact same movie. They have the same narrative. They just have different characters and different lines and different sequences and different costumes. We have the same narrative. And so what do we do with this shared narrative? Isn't it weird that we have the same story, that you and me share the same story at its most basic levels. What do we do with this? Do we say it's coincidence? Or could there be something else behind it? Could there be something more to this shared story? What if, what if that story, our story, has everything to do with our relationship with God? What if all of our stories have been shaped by a wonderful creator God who loves us and then his absence in our lives? What if that is our story? What if our story isn't even about us? What if our story is actually about God himself? And that is the story of our scripture. That is what God tells us about ourselves, that it is not us that this is about. It's about God himself. That's the story of scripture. Because as we look at veiled glory, what we're talking about is this, that we are made in the image of God. That we were made in the image of God. We are made in this world to reveal his love and his goodness to the world. And we know that in the beginning it was perfect. God made a very good creation. And God and man walked together in perfect harmony. We fully trusted God and we fully enjoyed him. We are living out our truest purpose to love and enjoy God all the days of our lives. There were no sickness. There was no death. There was no anxiety. There was no stress. Perfect union with God. Everything flourished and all was well. But as we have talked in many Sundays, that's not our story today. That's not our story today because something broke. 
And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look within ourselves and in the world and figure out that something is off within the world and within ourselves. Man and woman chose themselves over God. They trusted themselves over God. They disobeyed God. And in that moment, perfection, shalom, was absolutely broken. And all-out rebellion has set place in its place. There's a brokenness in this world, and we can't figure it out. And that brokenness comes from what? It comes from sin and death. It comes from sin, and it comes from death. It was a devastating fall. We remember in our scriptures that man and woman once existed naked and unashamed in front of each other and in front of God. Can you imagine what security one must have to feel to be naked in front of one another and in the presence of God? But in a moment, it was all broken. Man and woman hid from God. They clothed themselves, and they began to blame one another and God himself. It was a radical fall. And God kicks humanity out of the garden into a world full of sin and death. And ever since that day, we have been looking for what is authentic in our life. We have been looking for it everywhere. We are lost, the scripture says. Humanity is lost and without hope. We want to find authenticity. There is a fog over us because the very thing that we were made for and by, God himself and in his relationship, has been fractured. And we don't know what to do with ourselves. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Something is missing, and we can't figure it out. And it reminds me of, of the scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That Solomon writes this about God, that, that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There is a sense in which our hearts know what eternity is. We remember a day when God and man walked together in perfect shalom. We remember what was, but that is not our life anymore. And God has made it that we can't figure out the beginning and the end. We don't know what he has done and so it becomes frustrating to us. We're annoyed by it. I can't put my finger on what's lacking in my life. But we are bent all the days of our lives to find rest and peace for our restless souls. But the only thing that will quench the desires of our hearts is to have that which we once had in the garden. God himself. Because he is the only authentic true thing in this world. And we can only come to him by faith and repentance, believing, believing that he's exactly who he says he is. And in that, we find our acceptance. Acceptance is the story of faith and repentance. It's the story of faith and repentance. We have found what has oppressed us. We know what is holding us down. We know what keeps us hopeless. And the problem is, is that we look at it in the mirror every single day of our lives. It's us. It's our sin. 
It has separated us from our truest joy, from the truest love of our lives. We have been separated from God through our sin. And through God himself and our faith and repentance, we become redeemed. Our revealed glory is known. Because in Christ, we are united again with what was once lost. Peace was made with God through Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. Our relationship with God restored. We have hope and we have promise. And so friends, I tell you that, to say this, is that is everyone's story. Everyone knows that story. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, or whether anybody believes in Jesus or not, you know that story because it's written on your heart. And you can see it in the world. All of humanity shares the story of a beautiful creation and a tragic fall. That we were made in the image of God and it was great. Perfect, full, enjoyment. But then came a tragic fall and a life without relationship with God. We are without covenant relationship with God. And so how does God aim to be in relationship with us? God has not left us alone. He didn't just leave us to our own devices. God has sought to be in relationship with us again, despite ourselves. And the only way that he does that is through covenant, through covenant relationship. And so what I want you to hear today, how does God come into relationship with us again? It is only through covenant. So here's the truth. Covenant relationship is the mega narrative in your life. It is the story that interprets all other stories in both you and all of the world. We may have different people. There are different citizens, different parts of the world. We may do things differently have different circumstances, but we all share the same essential story. We need covenant because we need relationship with God. It's the only thing that we need in this life. And so what is covenant? Why covenant? Because we're without relationship. We're without relationship with the creator and sustainer of it all. And so in that covenant, God builds that covenant on certain things. How does he come into relationship with us? Well, he, in that covenant, defines certain things, and he does and enacts certain offices. And so for us to be in relationship with God, in covenant with God, we must first know that covenant's expectation. And we call that the law. That is the law. The law lays out the expectations of the covenant. God is loving, he is compassionate, and he has given us glorious promises in his covenant. But he is also perfect in justice. And he will not let his name be belittled or mocked. He will not let his creation or his creatures be trampled upon. He is holy and infinite. And so God gives to us finite, sinful people the law. We need the law because we are without justice. 
We are without justice. Humanity left to itself will always defer to doing what is right in its own eyes rather than doing what is right in the eyes of God. And so the law reveals the standard, the character of God himself. And he says that if we're going to be in relationship, you and I, and if you're going to be in relationship with one another, this is how you are to live because this is who I am. Now the problem is, is this. We're broken. And there is no way that we can obey that law. So what does God do? Knowing that, 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 that we're not going to obey this, but also knowing that he's perfect in justice. So what does God do with our imperfection? What does he do? Well, he sets up the priesthood. Priesthood. What is priesthood? Well, priesthood is necessary because we are without relationship. And we, in that relationship, we're without representation. And so God appoints priests to represent humanity in the covenant. So God is holy and we are sinful. God cannot communicate in, or commune in his perfect holiness with sinful man. So what does God need to do? He needs to make a mediator, one that stands in the gap, a priest that is the office of priesthood. The priests are the mediators. They're the representation between God and man. And then God sets up a tabernacle or a temple, you could say it. Why do we need a tabernacle? Because we're without access to God. We're without access to God. In the Old Testament, we hear of God declaring a tabernacle to be built. Why? So that his presence can live on the earth. The tabernacle is the very meeting point of heaven and earth. It is the very and only spot where heaven meets earth. And so God builds a tabernacle so his people have access to him through the priesthood. And why does God do that? Because God wants relationship with his people. He wants relationship with his people. Another element of a covenant is sacrifice. Why must there be sacrifice? Because we are without atonement. We can't obey the perfect standard of righteousness. We can't obey the law. We can't live up to God's holiness. God is perfect and just, and that justice must be satisfied. There is an atonement necessary for our sin, our falling short of the standard of God. Why? Because God wants relationship with his people. And so these are the terminologies and these are the definitions of what it means to be in a covenant relationship. And so over the next three and a half chapters or so, we're going to lay out why God's covenant in the Old Testament, with all of its language and with all of its definition, actually foreshadows the person and the work of Jesus Christ and his new covenant. And what we are going to take from it is this, is that Jesus offers us a better covenant. He offers us a better covenant, a better relationship with God. And what makes that covenant better than the prior? Well, because he makes everything better. He gives us a better law, right? So we can live justly and righteously. We now, now we know through Jesus what to do. 
No, he doesn't do that, does he? Jesus doesn't give us a better law. He fulfills the law. He lives a perfect life for us. He fulfills the law. Jesus brings us a better covenant because he brings us a better priesthood. A priesthood that never dies, that always lives to mediate with a different power and a different law than the old covenant. What makes Jesus' covenant better? Because Jesus brings us a better tabernacle. Because through Christ, we have access to God by faith, not to a temple someplace, somewhere in the world. But the scripture says that God, through Jesus, makes us his very own temple. That, Christ, that God dwells with us because of what Christ has done for us in the spirit of God. That God lives with us. That every place the believers in Christ go, there is a little place where heaven meets earth. Why? To reveal the goodness and the love of God to the world, that they would know him. Why is Jesus' covenant better? Because he offers us a better sacrifice. No longer is it bulls or goats, but it is the perfect blood from the perfect Son of God, the once and forever sacrifice for sin. All of God's justice is satisfied in Christ. Now, that's an overview of what we're going to be walking through for the next few weeks. And friends, his covenant is far more glorious than we have words to comprehend. And we're going to go over with great detail in the next few weeks the supremacy of Christ and his new covenant. But our task this week for the time that we have remaining, and we have of just a little time remaining, is to look in Hebrews 7 to understand why the priesthood of Christ is better than the old. And so let's look at chapter 7, starting in verse 11. And so our author writes this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? And so what is going on here? Well, what it is saying is that the old covenant, the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood could never have been useful, fully attaining perfection from its inception. Why? Because the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood received the law. The priesthood enforced the law. It came under the law. And what do we know about law today? That was true then. We know that good law, good law creates better habits and it creates better civilizations, but it doesn't change our hearts. It provides for us boundaries and protection and it creates a system of justice, but it can't fix what's wrong in us. The Levitical priesthood was always flawed because it was under the law and the law could never fix us. Because the law can only reveal our sin and our disobedience. It can never change us. 
And the second reason why the Levitical priesthood was never going to attain perfection, it was never going to be the main thing that was going to go forward, is that it was run by men. And I'm not knocking on men in general there, but it was, it was run by mankind. The priesthood was set up as a system that was ruled by men that weren't, they weren't appointed by popular opinion. It wasn't like, hey, Jim's really good, right? I think we should vote him in as a priest. I think he's going to be an awesome priest. It wasn't because God looked down and said, hey, that guy is righteous, and so I'm going to make him priest. No, the, the priesthood was about birthright. And so any male descendant from Aaron or the tribe of Levite would become a priest. And so the priesthood had everything to do with what lineage you had, what birth you were, what family you were born in. Now, think about this. Uh, Let me tell you why this is going to be corrupt. Because I can sit down with you and I can look through your family tree. And there's going to be a moment that you're going to come to a bonehead in your family, and you're going to go, I'm sorry for this guy, right? He's a weirdo, and lots of shenanigans have been caused by this guy. There's lots of dysfunction in our family because of him. And look, there's a lot of dysfunction in all of our families, just to be honest. This is why the Levitical priesthood was always going to be a corrupt. You can look at your dysfunctional family, and you can be glad in knowing this. Well, at least that he's not a Levitical priest. He's just some weird guy out there, but he's not a Levitical priest. That is what we're talking about here. Just by birth, you would become a priest. It would become your right. It's crazy. The priesthood was always going to be corrupted because of that. And so what we find in the Old Testament are priests that are just utterly corrupt. They would take sacrifices that people brought in, 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 in wanting to give to God, appease to God, to, to give it to him. And they would take those sacrifices and they would eat it. They would bring him a goat it was meant for God, and then they would eat it, right? They would, I mean, they cook it. They cook it. They're not animals, right? They would cook it, but they would eat it. And then they would, they would take money, and they would force other people and say, hey, your, your sacrifice isn't good enough. Like the dove is not pure, pure and spotless. There's a little bit of tarnish on him. You're going to have to buy this really expensive one for me. And so the priesthood is just utterly corrupted. And then you have to deal with this fact, that as humans we are finite, meaning that we're going to die. If we look at verse 23 in this chapter, it says that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. And so certainly there will be days that you had some good priest, times that you were, yeah, there's a good priest, but you would always know this, like, man, when Jebediah dies, (laughs) I mean, have you seen his son? Like, he's a nut, And that's going to be our next priest. And so it's just like this up and down, good and priest and bad priest. And so when the author asked us this question here in verse 11, it's a bit of rhetorical because of course there is a new priesthood needed. Of course there is a new priesthood that is necessary. God wasn't going to continue with this corrupted priesthood forever fundamentally and without question, God is good to us and he has gifted God's people, the Levitical priesthood with all of its quirks for a while, but it was always meant to be a shadow, a type that pointed forward to what was yet to come in the Son of Man. And so Jesus is a better priesthood, friend. Jesus has a better priesthood. Why? Because number one, he has no beginning or end. He lives forever. 
Jesus is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. And we remember we're reading, we're reading about this weird guy in Genesis 14 last week. He's this everlasting priest that, that didn't have a beginning or an end. He's without genealogy. He existed before Moses. He existed before the law. And so what this is saying is that Jesus is going to come from a different priesthood. One that is everlasting. One that predates the covenant that God made with Abraham. One that predates the law that was given through Moses. Jesus and his priesthood pre-existed the covenant. Pre-existed the law. He was outside of it. Number two in learning why Jesus has a better priesthood is that he comes from a better line of priest. He comes from a better line of priest. And so let's pick this up in chapter 7, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with the tribe, Moses said nothing about priest. All right, so listen, because Jesus has a better priesthood, it means that he originates from a better line. And that means that he is going to change virtually everything about the new covenant, including the law. Now, many of you have maybe walked into a scenario where you had a job, and at that job, one day you heard news that the company sold. And some new owners were going to come in, and they were going to make sweeping reform. They were going to make this company profitable and lean. They were going to bring a whole new system. They were completely detached from the old leadership and the old ownership, and they were going to put their stamp on the company. Now, lots of things change, don't they? Your mundanes and jobs might change a little bit. How you do your job might change. The the, the standard of what is acceptable and unacceptable might change. When you work, it might mean that you change language or systems or even the environment of the workplace changes. With new ownership comes new law. Comes new law. They're going to put their stamp on that company. And so because Jesus has existed forever, outside the line of Levi, a descendant of Judah, not in connection with Moses or Aaron or the Levites, it is necessary that when his priesthood happens, when he becomes the better priesthood, that the law changes as well. Because Jesus is going to put his stamp on humanity. He's going to put his stamp on humanity. Now, maybe you have some regrets about your boss selling to this new person and you wish this person didn't put the stamp on you at your company. You want the old ownerships back. But that's not the case with Jesus. It's not the case with Jesus. What our author is saying is we need to get rid of this priesthood. It was always the truth. We need to get rid of this priesthood. It was very good for a moment, but it wasn't going to serve the ultimate purpose of Christ and of God. We need a different priesthood, a better priesthood with different law because the old one isn't working. In verse 15, it says this. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent. He's not just born out of the line, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
All right, now this is our last point. We're going to continue into next week about the priesthood of Jesus, but this is our last point on why Jesus' priesthood is better. It is better because his authority comes from an indestructible life. From an indestructible life. When you were a kid, when you were a kid and you were in a situation where you were in trouble, you often based your authority and power outside of yourself. And so you might put your authority and power in another family. So you might be in a situation where you say, hey, if you don't let me go, my dad is going to come and he's going to beat you up. Right? He's going to beat you up. You would defer to a power outside of yourself because you didn't have authority and power. Someone else did. The authority and the power of the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, came from the outside. Their authority was solely based on the word of God and God's faithfulness in his promises. They had no real authority and power. It was all God's authority They had status because they were in the role of priest, but they didn't have power, which is why the Levitical priesthood was going to get corrupt because instead of enjoying and loving God with all of their lives, they decided to be like God because they wanted to have power and authority. But when Jesus comes and brings to us a better priesthood, it means this, that his own life is a testament to his power and his authority. Jesus lives a perfect life. He's without sin. He conquers death and he's raised from the dead, which means this, that he is capable of saving the world from themselves in their sins, not through better law or policy, but through himself, that he is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. He doesn't defer to an outside power or authority. He is the outside power and authority. He gave up his life. And then in his resurrection, he picks it back up again. His priesthood is better because it comes from an indestructible life. And so that is where we're going to stop today. But let us be reminded of this. We need a covenant. That is our story. We are without relationship with God. That is the story of all humankind. It's a story that interprets all of their stories. And in that covenant that Jesus brings to us, it is far superior than the old in virtually every way. Jesus radically redefines what our relationship with God looks like. And it is for our joy and for his glory. And so let's take some time to remember him today in a meal that we call communion. Because it is because of the risen Christ that we can join together as a community of hopeful but broken believers who seek to love what he loved and live what he lived and taught and do what he taught and strive to be faithful in this our time and place. And so in this meal, we remember Jesus. We remember his promises, the price that he paid for us, who he was, what he said, what he did. We remember that on the night before he died that Jesus took the loaf of bread And he gave thanks to it, and he broke it, and he said, take and eat. Whenever you do this, remember me. And after supper, he took the cup, and he poured it out, saying, this is the new covenant. Remember me. Today, we do that. We remember his life, and his love, and his friendship, his teaching, his dying, and his raising to life again. And as we participate in this shared meal for the saints of God called communion, it comes with a shared declaration of faith. That this is what we believe. That Christ has died. That Christ has risen. That Christ is coming and will come again. Can we say that together? Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. The body 
of Christ represented in the cracker, the lifeblood of Christ, his blood, the cup of blessing represented in the juice. These are the gifts of God for his people, and these are good gifts that we should be thankful for. And so look, if you're in here today and you're of the people of faith, if you have made a decision to follow Jesus as as elementary and as basic as that is, Come to the table and commune and dine with God. But we remind you, if you have not made a decision to follow Jesus, like, look, we're glad that you're here. We want you to be here. But know that this is for the family of God. Our scripture tells us that we should take seriously our time of communion. And so in these next few moments, it takes some moments to explore our hearts, to seek forgiveness where we need to seek forgiveness. Parents, remember, you're the chief disciples of your family. You are the ones that determine whether they take communion or not. And so let's spend some moments of inflection considering our offenses to God and one another, and be serious about it. And so the band is going to come out, and they're going to play for a little bit. And when you're ready, by yourself, take your elements, and then join us in worship.